if you support a majority of 535 people in Washington coercively controlling the lives of 330 million Americans, you do not support equality, nor do you value progress. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today we have Dave Rubin of what might be the most important book to read on a day like today. Don't burn this book. Mr. Rubin, thank you for your time. Keith, thank you for the kind words. On page 53, you say censorship is not a solution to bad ideas. Silencing people never reforms them. It simply pushes their bad ideas underground when they're allow where they're allowed to fester and grow. So we know it's nice to do, but why should I, someone who has an ideology, care about listening to other people's ideas? Well, you know, it's funny because at some level you don't have to care, but if you don't care and you just let bad ideas proliferate, that's a, that one got me for some reason. If you just let these bad ideas proliferate, if you just let them spread all over the place and you don't counter these bad ideas, well, then bad ideas will, will come for you, right? The, the bad ideas of authoritarianism, of big government, of state power, of top-down view of the world, these things will come and get you. So on one hand, you don't have to listen to them, but you better watch out. On the other hand, uh, you, what you don't want is people coming in and saying, you can't say these things. Now look, we have very, very specific laws laid out in the Constitution around speech. In effect, you can say anything except for direct threats of violence. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater with the intent of causing chaos. Uh, and then we have we have extremely, extremely strict libel and slander laws that are almost never used because they're so strict and cost so much money to get through the legal system. Beyond that, you can say whatever you want. What we're watching happen right now, uh, without getting into all of the specifics of what happened at the Capitol the other day, is that people are being basically depersoned. People are being wiped out from the internet, order 66 from the internet, right now because they are not woke. That is a huge difference. We're watching giant tech monoliths say, hey, we in many ways are more powerful than the government right now and we'll decide who can speak. And eventually it'll be, it'll be who can uh, have a phone and who can bank and who can be seen at restaurants and everything else. So we're, we're in a very dangerous spot. This is exactly what I was warning against in the book. And that is not to say that there aren't bad people out there with bad ideas, as I referenced earlier. Of course there are. But if you just push these people all away, if you just say, okay, well, here's the main avenue of communication and this huge chunk of people, which by the way, will be an ever expanding chunk of people, right? If you just say these ideas are okay, well, then you're constantly going to be going, no, no, no. Oh, actually, I got to make this idea now. Okay, this idea now. Okay. And then you got everybody else on the outside. And if you say to people, you can't speak, you can't go to work, we're going to lock you in your house, you get, you're going to get on no files and everything else. What are you going to leave people with? It's some pretty bad stuff. And that's what we should be watching out for. And I, I fear that the people that are, that are doing these digital assassinations right now don't quite realize the road that they're going down. Exactly. So say that, well, I am someone who believes in social justice activism. I won't listen to Dave Rubin for a whole hour, but maybe I'll give him 30 seconds to a minute just to maybe get a bird's eye view. What would you say if you had a, if a quick elevator pitch to the social justice activists, what would you tell them? I believe in individual rights. That is the foundation of the United States, and that's what I believe. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what skin color you are. I don't care what gender you are. I believe if you're a citizen of the United States, you should be treated equally under the law, just like everybody else. What I don't believe in is equity. What I believe in is equality, and those are different things, meaning one is 
equality under the law. Everyone's treated the same, but then you got to work hard. Some of it's luck. Some of us are born with more. Some of us are born with less. Some of us have great physical talents. Some of us don't, et cetera, et cetera. Versus equity, which is where the state can come in and rejigger society where it's constantly dragging these people up, which kind of sounds good. But what that means is you also have to push these people down. And we're seeing that right now, just in the last day, Joe Biden gave a speech saying that when they start coming around for COVID help, ec economic help, they're going to help black and Hispanic and Pacific Islander businesses first. What, what does that have to do with the government? That's actually anti-constitutional, I think, and I hope he sees some pushback legally. But in essence, if you're a social justice warrior and you don't like what I'm saying about identity politics, you should just think about what identity politics mean. Do you want to be judged exclusively on your immutable characteristics? The answer is nobody wants to be. And yet so many people are confused by these ideas. It's incredible. The people telling us about equality are the wealthiest people. You know, Obama, uh, AOC has a tremendous amount of wealth now. The Young Turks who get billions of views. Well, that's a few more views than I think I have. They're the ones talking about equality. Uh, there was a professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who said the elites push equality because it's undefinable and unachievable, so they could always keep ushering in new solutions under equality. Why is it that the people who have so much attention, so much airtime, are the ones telling us about equality? Yeah. Do you mean equality or do you mean equity there, just to be totally clear? I'm uh, equality of outcome. So, uh, okay, so equality, right, okay, so equality of outcome, which is equity, right? So meaning okay. that meaning that we're all racing, but in, in the end, equity will make sure that we're all at the same spot. Again, that sounds nice, but what it is, it's communist. What it, it means that we're going to have to do all of these tricks throughout society to punish people who don't deserve to be punished. I, I don't think any white person is born guilty uh, and should thus be punished because of the color of their skin. When they promise you equality of outcome and equity, that's what they're basically telling you. We have to punish these people. It's deeply dangerous. The reason, though, that the elites love it, that they love equity, is because what they're telling you is, we're going to keep our uh, success and our elite people at this high level that no one will ever touch. Everyone else is just going to rise to here. Now, what would happen in, in a society that was about equality, which is what we've had in America for 250 years, is you're going to get all sorts of people, but the, the lowest people will always be rising. And we know that, that the, the poorest person in the United States is, is lucky by, by any standard in most of the, uh, the rest of the world. But what you'll have is you'll have great disparities. So yes, we're gonna have some poor people, and in America we've had a very solid middle class, but then you also get billionaires, right? You get super rich people. By the way, I don't begrudge them that money. That's what you get in a, in a society that's based in equality. People are gonna be able to get to that elite level. What the elites now are saying is, hey, we got what we need, we're good to go, we're closing the door behind us, the rest of you will just get equity. You're just going to get whatever peanuts we throw you. And unfortunately, the, because these, all, these ideas sort of sound right, everyone should end up with the same thing. Everyone should be equal in the sense of having the same stuff. Young people are bamboozled by it. And it, the thing is that time and again has shown that these Marxist, communist, and socialist ideas are the worst ideas uh, throughout time. On page 172, you say, if you admit that you don't know something, you no longer have the stress of lying to yourself or anyone else. You can enjoy the learning process and make it a mutual exchange of ideas. Why is humility important? 
Well, I think it's probably more important now than it's been in, let's say, the last 20 years because everybody, because of social media, pretends that they know everything about everything at all times, right? Like the Iran nuclear deal gets signed, suddenly people, anonymous avatars on Twitter are suddenly <laughs> telling you everything you need to know about yellow cake uranium. I mean, you know, whatever the news of the day is, net neutrality, somehow people are all experts in internet service providers. Uh, we have the Parrot Climate Accords. People who couldn't tie their shoes suddenly can tell you everything you need to know about CO2 emissions. Everyone is constantly pretending they know everything about everything. And I'm a believer as somebody that has interviewed an awful lot of bright people over the years, and I've been able to attain more information from them and know more and have a wider worldview. I don't know everything. And if I did know everything, I, I certainly wouldn't be interviewing people for a living. It would be the most boring thing you could possibly do if you really knew everything. I, I try to bring on people that I can learn a little something from, and I, I suppose I've been pretty good at it. Um, the, the lack of humility is, it's a human condition, it's an ego condition, but it's also exacerbated by the social media condition. And we, we gotta get past it. We gotta get past it because we're gonna be just run by ego maniacal idiots if we don't. And maybe we're there already. On page 182, you say, you say, every socialist or communist state tried to replace God with government. Can you expand on that? Yeah, this is one that it took me a long time to come around on, and I, I explained it a little further as I talk about how Jordan Peterson affected me. Um, but I think one of the things we're seeing right now is it seems like Western society is collapsing. It seems like our institutions are collapsing. Our media has absolutely collapsed. Our trusted voices are collapsing. Our educational system is collapsing. Uh, or as my friend Ben Shapiro would say, disintegrating. As these things are happening, it's not a coincidence. This, what we're seeing in many ways and this, it saddens me to say this as someone that just wrote a whole book defending classical liberalism, which in many ways is modern day libertarianism. We're seeing the end of liberalism. We're seeing the end of a society that is purely secular. And that's a hard place for me to argue from because it's not a place that I usually am comfortable sitting in. But what it has become obvious to me is that for a society to operate, it must believe in something bigger than itself. We have God-given rights. That's what our founders said. Our founders didn't say, we give you the rights and now we're writing this document to protect you. They said, freedom exists. Humans are free by the divine right of God. We can just create a system to protect that freedom. We've completely moved from that idea to think that the state can do everything. And in, it's funny because even in the last few days, I've seen so many people, well-known public atheists and skeptics and scientists who I've long admired, some who I consider friends, who are suddenly happy that Donald Trump is banned from Twitter. They suddenly are for censorship. And I think the reason, the reason for that, it's not disconnected. If you don't believe in something outside of yourself and you only believe that your own belief system is enough, you're gonna be able to do a lot of really bad things in the name of being good. And I think, I think societies need God as an organizing principle to, to allow people to flourish, which is why it's very odd, but I find, I guess it's not very odd, but it's a little new to me, let's say. I find people of faith to be much more open and decent and willing to agree to disagree than the purely secular, secularists. And we're watching a purely secular society eat itself right now. So I think society needs God. I, I, I see no way around it. My uh, final question about your book specifically is you make an excellent case for classical liberalism. Uh, and there is a lot, there 
are a lot of criticisms of the classical liberal freedom position that, well, in this society, there could be greed, corruption, disinformation, and all this terrible stuff. The problem with these is all of them apply tenfold to government because you can't opt out <laughs> of funding government and they don't face competition. I'm curious. Uh what is uh, is there anything unique about the free market or the idea of voluntary market interactions that you think there is anything uniquely wrong with that justifies uh, coercive state intervention? The, the short answer is no, in that I believe in the human mind. I believe in human ingenuity. I believe that you, Keith, will live the best life for yourself that you're able to do. And the less coercion that you have involved in that life, meaning from the government or whatever structures exist, would allow you to to flourish the most. The reason that I that I usually don't say I'm a pure libertarian, although I love libertarian ideas, I love even talking to the ANCAP guys like Michael Malice. And in many ways, I, 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 you know, classical liberalism, we could whittle it down into how it's different than libertarianism or not. And I think those are those are things better suited for uh, conferences than they are for sort of the day-to-day -day political person. Uh, but the reason that I usually don't say that I'm a pure libertarian is because I view government, and I and I, you're going to see this as a very minor difference. I view government as just the necessary evil in the system. That you do need some organizing principles. So, for example, most libertarians would say they want no drug laws. I just don't believe that. And I've debated this, by the way, with with many libertarians who do believe that there should be no drug laws. I know that I don't want someone making meth next door to me. Now, that doesn't mean that our war on drugs has been good. It has not. That doesn't mean I want to put drug users in jail. I do not. Um, but I also think a society has to have some of these uncomfortable guardrails. But, but to truly answer your question, I mean, freedom is the answer. Allowing people to figure out what is best for them is the answer. And, I, and that's why I try not to get lost in these little differences. At the end of the day, if, if you feel slightly differently on how I feel about the drug thing, or generally libertarians are more open borders than I am, uh, those are great debates to have. And if we can keep our humanity in it, then we can keep debating those things. And by the way, libertarians are extremely good about debating ideas, and very rarely will you end a debate with a libertarian where he's at the end telling you, you know, you're a horrible person. You try that with a leftist, it's a whole other thing. I want to go over some of the people who have intellectually uh, inspired you. So. What is the most important thing you learned from the works of, or just knowing, Jordan Peterson? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. I mean, mm. there's just no doubt about it. Tell the truth. And if you say something that is true, you have no idea how that can affect the world. And I got to see the guy do it on a day-to-day -day basis. I got to travel with the leading public intellectual of the world, watch him tell the truth, and, and see the way that changed the world. It was, it was remarkable. But what about the utilitarian result of I might lose my friends, my family who once loved me might now look down on me. Why should I still tell the truth? Because if you do not tell the truth in service to keeping the illusion that you have all of these people in your life who accept you because you're not being the real you, uh, eventually that will destroy you. That will destroy you. That's not to say that it, when you tell the truth that it's suddenly going to be Shangri-La and, uh, you know, popping open the champagne because it's going to come with some pain. Of course it's going to come with some pain, but if anything if if anything was was easy, then it wouldn't be the right like if anything was easy everyone would do it, right? We all know that. When something's tough, when you got to stand for your own thing and slog through the machine, then most likely you're going to get out better on the other side. I've never seen someone tell the truth 
and live the truth and fight for truth and regret it. Even people when bad things happen to them because of it, and bad things do happen to people who tell the truth. Um, I don't think most people regret it. Most important thing you learned from the works of Ben Shapiro. Facts don't care about your feelings. I mean, there's a reason that that line ca caught on with Ben, and I, I think it's true. Uh, ben is Ben is a fact machine, and he's incisive and witty and quick, and he talks fast and the whole thing. Uh, but I think that that the reason that phrase caught fire was because it wasn't just the alliteration; it was just that facts don't care about your feelings. That that we live in a we live in a real world, and then there's you. There's your feelings about the world. And you gotta figure out a way to put those things together. And way too many people think that this world, the world of their feelings is the real world, where in fact, a fact-based world is the real world. And then how you react to it is what defines you. Most important thing you learned from the works of Thomas Sowell. Oh, know your stuff, know your stuff. I mean, this guy is a true, uh, genius when it comes to libertarian economics. He has, he has stood his ground. He is, you know, the things that, that I talk about now, this guy was talking about 50 years ago and writing books about and has debated, you know, all of the brilliant uh, people across the board every which way. And, and some people that are not so brilliant, uh, say the more socialist <laughs> economists, uh, but he's debated plenty of people. But know your stuff sit down in a conversation ready to be armed with facts. Well, what does the welfare state do? What does high taxation do? What does high regulation do? And if you can sit down with people knowing your stuff, well, you won't be hysterical. Part of the reason the lefties generally are so hysterical is because they don't know their stuff. So they overly emote to, to compensate for that. Most important thing you learned from the works of Dennis Prager love and adore and admire Western civilization. I, I think that's Dennis's greatest contribution. He's written many books about it. I, I think I've got one of them right over there. Um, he, he has shown me and shown quite literally millions of people over the course of the last couple of decades on, on the radio and now with PragerU that the American experiment, as he calls it, is the, is the greatest human experiment we've ever done. We, we've done it so brilliantly for 250 years expanding more freedom to more people. And if you feel like it's in a precarious position at the moment, well, you're right, because it is in a precarious position and you gotta keep fighting for it. And I think too many people have stopped fighting for it. Most important thing you learned from Ayan Hersey Ali. I was gonna say bravery, but I'll say something else. Grace, grace. Ayan, who I've gotten to know quite well off camera as well, and I've interviewed her a bunch of times, it's not just that she's brave. It's not that just that she stood up to Islamists and now stands up to Marxists. And it's not just her life story uh, of leaving Somalia and the arranged marriage and female genital mutilation. It's that after all of that, yeah, she's brave, no doubt about it, but she's graceful, she's decent, she's fun, there's a light in her. And a lot of people, I think that light would have been extinguished, but she found something that allowed her to, to continue doing it in a decent way. That's graceful, that's beautiful. Christina Hoff Summers. Oh, well, that first wave feminism is way better than third wave feminism. Christina fights for a feminism that of course most of us would believe in, a, a feminism of equality, uh, an equality of opportunity so that women should have the opportunity to do whatever they want, not an equality of equity where women should basically be forced to do things. There are fundamental differences between men and women. Women generally like people more. 
Men generally like things more. Thus, men and women choose different careers. Women can bear children, men cannot. Uh, there are differences and we should embrace those differences and just fight so that each person is equal under the law, not forced into living any life that they don't want to live, which ironically is the people, the people who are telling you they're freeing you, they're actually <laughs> forcing you into servitude. It's a, quite incredible. Peter Thiel. Think differently. Uh, I, I've become very close with Peter. I, I hold him uh, in the highest regard because he's a, he's a nice guy, okay. He's a brilliant tech guy, okay. But there's something else. It's that he dare dares to choose to think differently and to go against the grain. You know, we all think that we do that, right? Oh, oh, I won't go with the mob. I'll think differently. I must do things. I'll be whatever, offbeat and whatever. And he's a bit of a quirky character. Um, but he really does it. And by thinking differently, I think that is what has allowed him to stay ahead of things. So, you know, Peter Thiel left uh, San Francisco. Everyone knew San Francisco was crumbling under leftist policies and Silicon Valley was crumbling. Well, he didn't just leave himself. He took his entire company and left. And that tells you, wow, by, by seeing the road in front of you, but looking at it a little bit differently, you can make moves to the future that'll be a lot clearer. And I have no doubt that he will continue to make such moves. Finally, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi's a new one for me because we've we've become friends really in the last year and I, I interviewed her during the presidential campaign and just this morning she was on my show and, and we were announcing that she's joining my tech company, Locals, Tulsi.Locals.com. Tulsi, how about, how about tolerance with Tulsi? Because she is, she's not just saying it. You know, everybody says tolerance. We need to be more tolerant. Tulsi means it. She really wants to embrace a spirit that would allow us to live in society with people who are very, very different than us. And I think the, the saddest thing for the state of the Democratic Party, and there's so many sad and worrying things within that party right now, the saddest thing is that Joe Biden or whoever's in charge, it's probably not Joe Biden, but whoever's in charge, that they chose uh, Kamala Harris instead of Tulsi Gabbard is, is really unfortunate because there was a moment where they could have said, hey, Joe is what he is. But now we're going to choose somebody who's a true healer, who, who has some principles that are thought of as a little more left, but certainly has some principles that are thought of as a little more right and really could have been a unifier. I think she has incredibly bright things in her future because of that. What's the biggest misconception that uh, people have about you? Well, I mean, I would say, the you know, there's a sort of mainstream idea that somehow I'm I'm further to the right than I am, whatever that means. Now, look, I would say by any estimation, my, the libertarian and classical liberal ideas that I have, <clears throat> excuse me, that by any estimation in 2021, I would say that is a type of modern conservatism. I, I actually don't mind being called a conservative anymore um, because I would say the conservatism is sort of a wide tent. And I think you and I probably fall on the libertarian side of that wide tent. And then there's people maybe who are more religious conservatives and, and across the board. So in other words, there's somebody like Rudy Giuliani, who anyone would say is a conservative. He happens to be pro-choice. That's pretty interesting. Nobody's debating whether he's a conservative or not. And he's pro-choice. And by the way, was was pro-gay marriage way before uh, the party got there. The left is is sort of increasingly small in the in the ideas that it allows you to have. So I would say, you know, there's these people that think, that I've cozied up to these scary right-wing people. But then when, when, that, when I say, well, who do you mean? And well, you hang out with Glenn Beck and Dennis Prager and <laughs> Ted Cruz and Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. I say, well, these are good people. 
these are good people. And I think that that's the irony is that they've done something really dangerous by, by taking everyone who they disagree with and labeling them these horrible things. Well, then when you start listening to them or you read a Thomas Sowell book or you watch a Ben Shapiro video or whatever it might be, and you suddenly go, you know, these people are not racist. They're actually quite good people. And they think about things differently than I've been taught to think about them. And then next thing you know, you're completely red-pilled because you're going, holy cow, it was those people lying to me. So I don't mind being called right. I don't mind being called conservative or libertarian. Um, but the idea that, that somehow th that, that would all equal up to far right or something like that, you know, it's kind of gross and lazy, I would say. There is a psychological idea that people will sometimes manipulate you by mistreating you, calling you a racist or a Nazi or pathetic. This way you become a manic people pleaser and have to start, you know, making sure that everything you say is approved by them, etc. Is that what you see going on? You use the term uh, psychological manipulation, making people second guess themselves. What do you have to say to someone who is genuinely feeling insecure about some ideas that they have or people? People they enjoy reading. You must go where the facts are. You, you must go where you're intellectually curious to go. So for anyone that's listening to this, that's going through that, right? And I went through it. And, and I think almost everyone goes through it. It's, I, I describe it in the book as factory settings. Everyone kind of grows up a lefty in America because of our public education and our cultural norms. Then you start waking up to it and you suddenly think, oh my God, am I crazy? Am I one of those evil people? Could I be a bad guy? Am I part of the dark side? Like, where do I get my Darth Vader helmet? And then, and then what you realize is, well, as I said before, then you go, okay, they're not so bad. But partly what they will do is no matter what you say, if you say I'm for low taxes, they'll say you're racist. And you go, well, what are you talking about? And they say, well, if you're for low taxes, that means you don't want to help poor people. And if you don't want to help poor people, you don't want to help black people. And you might say, well, wait a minute, there's actually poor, more poor white people than poor black people. And it has nothing to do with racism. I just don't think that the welfare state is helping getting one out of uh, getting anyone out of poverty, and you might want to read this book by Thomas Sowell that explains it further, and they'll still tell you you're a racist, and they'll tell you Thomas Sowell's a sellout, but you will feel okay knowing that you've done your homework and you've stood up for the principles that you believe in. If you could get all social justice activists or progressives to read one book, what would that book... Okay, the first book is Don't Burn This Book by <laughs> Dave Rubin. Okay, what is the second book that you would recommend that they read? For the record, I was actually not even going to say my book. That would have been too easy. What would be the book? <laughs> what would be the book that I would have them read? Um, well, I, I tend to think that these people wouldn't give me a very long leash to read a book that would be a lot of pages, right? So I would say, how about? In, it's not even a well. It is a book, but it but not in a traditional sense. I would think if you read on liberty by John Stuart Mill. If you really try to understand why liberty is important, why freedom is important, it is a book. I mean, it's, it's a super thin book and they can read it in, you know, in an hour or two, really. And you're gonna have to read it a couple times, obviously, because there's some old English there and there's some high level stuff you're gonna have to think through. But understand why liberty matters, that just because you don't want the government involved in everything doesn't mean that you're bad or evil. You want you want to leave it up to people more than a machinery. People are imperfect, and the left thinks that we can create a perfect system, but we can't create a perfect system, and that's why on the road to the perfect system, on the road that, that socialism and communism and Marxism take you down, you end up killing an awful lot of people because you suddenly start going, 
There's a lot of people who disagree with this system and that system isn't tolerant of it. You know, you know what system is tolerant of other ideas? It's capitalism, it's freedom, it's the United States, it's the US Constitution. We got a minute and a half left. What is your favorite Seinfeld episode? Ha! I love that you're asking me this. You know, just in the last week, I've been watching a ton. I watch it on Hulu now, and uh, I've just sort of, I've like had it with all the other shows and everything's so serious. So I've just been completely diving back into Seinfeld on there. And, you know, I always, there's a yada, yada, yada option, which is just a random option. So I just press the random option and pick it. The best episode of Seinfeld, you know, the episode that I don't think a lot of people would pick this one. But the episode, it's very early on, I think maybe it's season two or season three, where they all end up on different adventures on the subway, is, is such a spectacular episode, and it's perfect Elaine. There's a moment where she's stuck in the subway and the lights keep going off and she's packed, and they're running through what she's saying in her head and the paranoia, and are we going to ever get off, and someone's touching me and she's freaking out. It's just absolutely absolutely perfect and i will say i also any other one that that involves jerry's parents and del boca vista and and the costanzas is you know they're they're, they're sort of over the top and ridiculous and it's great and favorite curb your enthusiasm episode ah favorite curb you know how about the season finale of what i think was season five which was the season that larry was going to die and then he dies in the last episode and he goes he's on his way to heaven and if you remember, the, his two angels on the way to heaven, or as he gets into heaven, are Dustin Hoffman and Sasha Baron Cohen. And he meets his mother in heaven for just a moment. And his mother is played by perhaps my favorite actress of all time, B. Arthur. It's the last thing that she ever did. B. Arthur, of course, was in, of course, was in Maud and the Golden Girls. Um, and she's in it for just a moment. And she says, Larry, I'll see you again. And then Larry ends up back in his body and the show continues. Dave Rubin, thank you so much for your times and your contributions intellectually to classical liberalism. You're a great American, sir. I appreciate it. Take care. Keith, I appreciate you. Keep up the good work.